in their greed. These teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has, been hanging, has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who is distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you, with eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow, follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, <clears throat> who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they had escaped, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off 
at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. So it ends on quite a lovely note, doesn't it? Um, I recognise that we're uh, looking at probably the two heavier chapters of this book on the day that when when we're all most tired. Um, What chapter two is, is a warning for us. And so it would be a great shame if we slept or lost concentration during God's warning to us. A great shame. So I encourage you, and I'll pray for it in a minute, to stay awake during, um, during this passage. Uh, you can find the outline on page nine of your booklets, session four. Uh, I'll pray as we come to chapter two. Let me pray. Uh, gracious Father, Uh, Some parts of your word are very heavy and challenging and confronting. That is the case this morning in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. Lord, I pray that you would um, use me in my weakness to speak it with truth and clarity and boldness, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would give us hearts uh, today that heed your warning and pay attention to your scriptures and live in light of the true gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Never underestimate the internal threat. I think that is one of the big take-home lessons of the recent strawberry crisis that we had a couple of weeks ago. You see, think about it. If I was to ask a strawberry farmer about one month ago, what he thought was the biggest risk to their industry, well, I suspect he might have said something environmental like the threat of mildew or lack of rain or pests. You see, I don't reckon that a sinister employee working within the industry would have been at the front of his mind. But that seems to have been what happened here. It seems to have been that a disgruntled employee seeking to cause havoc stuck pins in strawberries and that action brought ruin to the whole industry as pretty much all of their products for the next few weeks had to be chucked out for safety reasons. And you see that bottom picture down there? That's just masses and masses of discarded Strawberries, a ruined industry. You see, internal threats are often overlooked, but are always devastating. It's true for the strawberry industry, and it's actually true in the church. 
You see, I reckon that for many of us, we think external before we think internal when it comes to threats to the church. For example, when I think of threats to uh, our Christian community, this is what first comes to my mind. A hostile media who just want to rubbish Christianity on TV and on radio. Radical politicians who want to get rid of Christianity's influence in our society. Socially progressive lobby groups who want to turn the tide of popular opinion against us. You see, I think external before I think internal. But what Peter is getting us to do in this passage this morning is to turn our minds to the internal threat. Because that's actually one of the biggest threats to our Christian community. Internal, not external. It's not angry outsiders Peter is getting us to think about here, but deceptive insiders, also known as false teachers. Peter is warning us about them in this passage, and we are meant to be saying by the end of this confronting passage, if I'm not ready for these guys, I'm going to be ruined by these guys. If I'm not ready for them, I'll be ruined by them. Now, there are three ways that Peter gets his readers ready in this passage. First, he helps them to recognize that there's a danger present. Second, he helps them to remember the destruction that false teachers face. And third, he shows them their depravity that they must be rejecting. Recognize the danger, remember the destruction, reject the depravity. That's how we're going to tackle it. So first, recognize the danger, verses 1 to 3. Peter, in these verses, wants his readers to recognize there is a danger, a danger of false teachers among them. Now, many of us know that in the Old Testament, uh, there were often false prophets leading God's people astray. Uh, They got them to worship gods like Baal and persuaded many of the Israelites to do detestable things on high places. But I want you to notice halfway into verse 1, Peter says that just as those guys were around in the Old Testament, so too there will be false teachers among you. Not there might be, Or not that there may be, but that there will be false teachers. Look at verse 1. But there were also false uh, false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, that might be hard for us to imagine, but Peter is saying that in our churches, even in Presbyterian churches, there will be false teachers. And what does Peter say they will do? Well, they'll introduce destructive heresy. Oh, it won't be totally obvious, but in subtle ways, they'll give just enough truth to mask their deadly error. In secret and cunning ways, they'll twist the truth. 
They'll deny the authority of God's word that we looked at yesterday and they'll teach people to follow their word, their authority. Look at what Peter says in the rest of chapter 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. But you see, what makes this so bad isn't just that there will be false teachers among us, among the Christian church, but that many, verse 2, will follow them. Notice that? It's not just going to be a few gullible outsiders, a few simpletons that fall for them. Many people who say they are Christian will embrace heresy and embrace the immorality that goes with it. You see, remember the big lie that was around uh, in Peter's day with the false teachers? No return of Jesus, no final judgment, therefore... No reason to live his way. The immoral lifestyle. Where there's heresy, immorality soon follows. Many people will believe that lie that says, I can be a Christian and live life on my terms. And I mean, how appealing is that to our sinful nature, right? I can be a Christian and just live out my sexual fantasies. I can be a Christian and hold that grudge. I can be a Christian and still live for money. Where do I sign? See, if we're honest, our sinful hearts so want that to be true. That's why many are snared. But Peter says, you need to see the truth, not the lie. The truth is that if you follow these false teachers, well, they're just going to exploit you. They'll manipulate you, sometimes for money, sometimes for sex, sometimes just because they want followers out of their own pride. But if you buy into it, If you buy that lie that says, I can be a Christian and live on my terms while you're following them down a path to destruction, look at verses 2 to 3. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. You see, imagine how awful it would be if you or the person you're sitting next to failed to recognise the danger, never took the warning seriously. Imagine if you or the person you were sitting next to bought into the lie that you never realised existed, the threat You started trusting someone that you found just so sincere, but you were snared. How horrible it would be to think that you or the person you're sitting next to was exploited by one of these teachers, fleeced out of all your money, 
used and abused sexually. How horrible it would be to think that while all that's happening, you're still following these crooks, thinking that one day it'll just still work out. Don't be part of the many in verse 2. Don't be the sort of person who shuns salvation for a life and eternity of destruction. We need to recognize the danger and say, if I'm not ready, I'll be ruined. Recognize the danger, point two, remember their destruction. Now, growing up, if my mother ever suspected me of doing something wrong, but I never fessed up, she'd always say, Christopher, be sure your sins will find you out. It's a well-quoted verse from Numbers 32. Be sure your sins will find you out. That was mum's way of saying, Christopher, if you have disobeyed me, you ain't going to get away with it. Well, in this next section, Peter is telling his readers that they can be sure that the sins of the false teachers will find them out. Their lies, their heresies, their abuse, their exploitation will be accounted for. In verses 4 to 9, Peter provides three Old Testament examples of judgment to reassure his readers that God won't let these guys off the hook. God will destroy those who rebel against him, but he'll look after those who take refuge in him. So we're going to look at the three Uh, Lessons in history briefly now. Let's look at history one, the rebellious angels. Peter says that if God didn't spare the angels when they rebelled against him in the beginning, verse four, well, why should we think these no-name false teachers are going to be let off the hook when they live in rebellion? Just as the angels await their judgment, so too the false teachers. History lesson number two, Noah and the flood, verse 5. Just as God came good on his promise to judge a rebellious world back then, so too he will come on good on his promise to judge these rebellious false teachers on that day when Christ returns. History lesson number 3, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. Those two notoriously immoral and lawless cities in the Old Testament. Remember what happened? In an instant, God destroyed them both with fire from heaven. Now, as confronting as that image is, and it is confronting when you read it, Peter says this is an example of what will happen to the ungodly, verse 7. It's like Peter is saying in this lesson, guys, there's no safety in numbers when it comes to rebelling against God. I mean, even if an entire society 
has made up its mind that God's rule can be rejected and a new moral order established, well, that doesn't make it right. God never overlooks bold-faced rejection and immorality. And you see, we need to keep that in mind, don't we, as we enter into a new moral consensus in our society that in many ways is opposed to Jesus' rule. See, are we as a church going to follow suit with our culture on topics like sexuality or gender? Because the line on the last day that everyone else was doing it, God, well, that's not going to fly. Three lessons in history. One point. Judgment day is coming for false teachers. Now, some of you might be thinking, man, all of this sounds pretty harsh. I mean, I know Peter tells us that these people have wonky doctrine and and pretty sleazy lifestyles. But do they really deserve what Peter describes in this chapter? You see, what we need to understand is that the punishment does fit the crime. You see, just imagine if the person that you love, uh, that you love most in life, was violently assaulted. Now, I suspect you wouldn't be doubting for a second the need for justice in that moment. But just imagine that the person you most love in life, your child, your spouse, your friend, your mother, imagine if that person had their life turned into a mess of sin and selfishness and then missed out on the eternal life you once thought they were headed for. All because someone led them astray with false words and empty promises. You see, if someone did that to one of you guys, after years of seeing you and being with you in church, after years of seeing you joyfully following Jesus, I mean, I'd be ropeable. I'd want to know that there was justice. If someone did that to one of my kids, I'd want to know there's justice. Peter is saying that there is here. There is justice, and we need to remember it. We need to be careful that we don't follow someone who is on a path to destruction. See, remember what we need to keep saying. If I'm not ready for these guys, I'll be ruined by them. But Peter wants his readers to also remember that they don't have to fear that judgment day that he's been talking about. They don't need to worry about being collateral damage in the firestorm that's coming on these false teachers that are among them. Instead, something wonderful awaits them on that day of judgment if they keep trusting Jesus, living by his word, you see, did you notice that interwoven into that, those second two examples of God's judgment 
was actually a message of God's rescue. Noah and Lot, you'll notice, are held up as examples of people who simply trust God in the midst of immorality and then experience his rescue. And that's as, actually, and that's as true for us today as it was for Noah and Lot back then. Amidst the world of immorality around us and all the difficulty and stress that goes with that, if we simply trust God by taking refuge in Jesus, well, we can be confident that on the last day, we will meet Jesus as our saviour, not as our judge. Noah was kept safe from God's wrath in the ark. We are kept safe from God's day of wrath in the Lord Jesus by trusting in his death, in his resurrection. Look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. When it comes to judgment and salvation, God knows what he is doing. Part of being ready for false teachers is to remember that their way is a path to destruction, but trusting Jesus is a path to rescue. But you see, Peter still doesn't want his readers to get complacent. And so he tells them the signs of depravity that they need to be on the lookout for and that they need to be ready to reject, which brings us to the third point. Reject their depravity, verses 10 to 22. Now, I'm not sure whether you've heard of the drug prevention program run out of the United States called Faces of Meth. Uh, This program, which began in 2004, was designed to deter people from taking that horrifically addictive drug, crystal meth. And if you've ever seen some of the images, like that one up there, they're shocking. That's actually one of the better images. They're shocking. You see, what they did was to use those images, though, of repeat offenders that they had taken over time to demonstrate the damaging effects of crystal meth. So they would compare an image of the a criminal when they first came in, and look at what's happened only three months later, addicted to that drug. And so what you'd have is the initial photo of a normal and healthy-looking person, but then in a later mugshot, many times you see this horrific picture of physical exhaustion, a face of hopelessness stripped of all condition, covered in scars and blemishes. And the point that they were trying to make with this program is to get people to see meth for the life of destruction that it is and run as far as you can in the other direction. Well, like the Faces of Meth program, Peter presents something of a Faces of False Teachers portrait in verses 10 to 22. It's kind of like he's saying, 
You guys need to see this horror show for what it is. You need to be aware of their ugly traits so that you can spot them and then reject them. These false teachers might have attractive appearances. They might be smooth talkers. They might have gelled up hair. But don't be deceived. Their lives are depraved. And verse 10 actually tells us the root of the problem with these guys. They despise authority. When people despise authority, in this case the authority of Jesus in their life, and live for their own desires, a grotesque horror show of personal corruption follows. Again, what is Peter wanting us to say in this passage? If I'm not ready for these guys, I'll be ruined by these guys. So what ugly traits is he wanting us to be on the lookout for? Well, firstly, false teachers are ugly in their blasphemy. Bold and arrogant, he writes, they heap abuse on celestial beings, verses 10 to 11. Now, it's a little bit hard to know exactly what Peter's referring to there. But the general point becomes clear in verse 12 where he says, they blaspheme in matters they do not understand. So we've got to look out for blasphemy. Blasphemy happens when someone denies or twists the truth of God, truth about God and his word. Now you may not realize this, and I was shocked when I found it out. But today, September 30th, is International Blasphemy Day. I'm not kidding. Um, I discovered this in preparing this passage and then discovered that it was September 30, the very day we've got a talk on false teachers. Uh, this day originated after um, the cartoon of Muhammad that was drawn back in 2005 as a response against that, but has sort of subtly more leaned towards blasphemy being against the Christian God. It's interesting, isn't it? This is a day celebrating the freedom to blaspheme. The creators of this day host online blasphemy challenges in which the best blasphemy wins a t-shirt or a mug. Now this day is the creation of those on the outside of the church. But blasphemy happens within the church as well. You see, take someone like the Episcopal Bishop, John Shelby Spong in the States, who denies the resurrection and twists the biblical understanding of who God is Listen to what he says. We have come to the dawning realization that God might not be separate from us, but rather deep within us. But that's blasphemy. God is not in us. He is transcendent from us. We are not God. Peter is saying that those who speak blasphemy are like unreasoning animals brought only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts, they too will perish. 
don't get sucked in by anyone who um, denies, mocks, or seeks to reconfigure God in their own image in a way that contradicts God's word. False teachers are ugly in their blasphemy, but false teachers are also ugly in their intentions. Sex, greed, and power drive what they do and what they say. Peter describes them as so unashamed in their immorality that they carouse in broad daylight. They revel in their pleasures while they feast with God's people, verse 13. Driven by their lust for sex, they move throughout the church with eyes, he writes, full of adultery, verse 14. And here's the devastating thing, right? They're successful in that pursuit. They end up seducing the unstable, verse 14. These are the sorts of people you believe are tending your soul only to, f- to find out they want to ravish your body. They are experts in greed. They know exactly the right words to say. They know exactly the right emotions to turn on in a conversation to get out of you what they want. They use. They abuse. They, said Peter, says Peter, are an accursed brood. Peter compares them to Balaam. Uh, in Numbers 22, Balaam's an Old Testament figure who tried to get rich out of hurting God's people. And you can go and read the story later, but this guy's motives were so twisted that it turns out even a donkey knew better than he did. You see, how tragic is it when we see and when we hear of these ugly intentions within the church? Think for a minute of the clergy's sexual abuse. I mean, I've always found those reports difficult to hear. But since having kids, I mean, I can't bear to think about the horror that so many children must have gone through at the hands of those abusers. Peter's words are fitting here. They are an accursed brood. And we should be doing what we can to make sure these sort of people are not let loose in our midst. And you see, that's why something like Safe Church, for example, is a good thing. And I know some of us think about the training sessions as tedious. This seems so obvious. We know it already. But it's worth it. It's worth doing what we can. It's worth knowing that our children are safe from people who would want to use them. Don't get sucked in by one who you know has a bent towards sexual immorality, greed, or power. They're ugly in their intentions. But they're also ugly in their empty promises. They promise everything, but they deliver nothing. 
They're like springs without water or mist driven by a storm, verse 17. They are what my high school friends used to call show bags, if you know that expression, full of rubbish. These people mouth empty and boastful words. They suck people in, they entice them, verse 18, by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature that live within us all. Uh, Robert Tilton was a classic con man televangelist in the early 90s. And often he would ask many people on his uh, TV shows to make $1,000 vows of faith. Make $1,000 vows of faith and you can be promised all sorts of miracles and blessings in return. Many people who watched his show, many of whom were often poor Americans, ended up being broke by this and nothing to show for it. All the while, he ended up making $80 million a year. See, on the surface, these false teachers look as though they are offering blessings and freedom to indulge and experience and enjoy life, but Peter says they haven't got the faintest idea about what true freedom is. Because these people are just slaves to depravity. And all they're offering is for you to return uh, for you to return to being a slave to your every lust with them. But that's a slavery that ends in hell. True freedom, on the other hand, is actually found in trusting Jesus and in living his way. See, in Christ, you are freed from the corruption of the world we learnt back in chapter 1, caused by evil desires. In Christ, you have a freedom that carries eternal life, not eternal death. Don't get sucked in by the one who has a trail of empty promises. They're ugly in their empty promises. And finally, they're ugly in their allegiances. They are people who have given their hearts to the world, not Jesus. Now here Peter returns to the heart of the matter. False teachers refuse the authority of Jesus' word in their lives. Look at verse 20. If they have, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, well, they're worse off uh, at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. You see, the tragedy of false teachers is that many of them actually appear to have started off quite well. They appeared at first to be trusting Jesus and to, at some level, know the way of righteousness. But as time rolls on, it becomes apparent that they never really knew him. Because over time, they end up returning again to all the usual suspects of sin 
lust, greed, lies. Or they may retain a nominal allegiance to Jesus. They may wear his label. But in their hearts, in their allegiances, they are far from him. Don't let false teachers drag you back into the mud pit of sin. Don't be like a dog that just throws up, goes away, and then runs back to it and starts licking it up. It's a sick image, isn't it? That's what Peter wants us to have in our head. Don't be like a pig that's had just had a nice warm bath, but then jumps back into the mud pit. That's the image. They're the two images that Peter wants us to be left with at the end of all this. It's interesting. The Lord Jesus says of false teachers, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Matthew 7, verse 16. Peter has given us a pretty good list of their fruit here, their rotten fruit. Ugly intentions, ugly empty promises, ugly allegiances. If I'm not ready for them, I'll be ruined by them. So that was a big warning. Recognize the danger, remember the destruction, reject their depravity. So what do we do with all of this at the end of the day? You see, are we now supposed to just become a little bit paranoid? Heretic hunters. Should we look now at each other really suspiciously? Are we supposed to be going into each other's cabins on this camp looking for evidence of heresy and a depraved life? Well, I think the implication of Peter's letter here is that he wants Christians to be prepared, not paranoid. You see, instead of being paranoid about what someone else believes, you need to be sure about what you believe. That's actually the best way to be ready. You need to so arm yourself with God's word that you'll recognize error when you hear it or when you see it. You'll be able to say, wait a minute, this guy just denied that Jesus is truly God. That's not what God's word says. Oh, wait a minute, that lady just suggested that there's more than one way to be saved, but that's not what God's word says. Well, well, wait a minute. This guy claims to be a Christian, but he says that homosexual relationships are okay. That's not what God says. And if you're sure about what you believe, you'll actually notice what's not said as well. That is, if you know what the core doctrines of following Jesus are, it'll become obvious if someone just never wants to speak about one of them for some reason. Wait a minute. Why does this guy never speak about hell or judgment? 
wait a minute, why does this guy never speak about sin? You'll notice what's not being said as well. You see, you need to be prepared because these people won't just appear in churches. They'll appear in the YouTube videos you watch. The friends that you are introduced to through other friends. The podcasts that you might listen to. We need to get into the practice of always testing what we hear by what the Bible says. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 to 22, Paul writes, Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John 4, 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test. Test to see whether they're from God, he writes, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. See, one of the things I've always appreciated about Neil, right, in the 15 years I've been involved with Bundy, is that even though Neil's a smart man, even though Neil is a former theological college lecturer, Neil will routinely remind us to test what he's saying by the scriptures. You notice that? He'd be like, you've got to test it. You test what I'm saying. Go home, read it, test it. You see, it's only as we know the Bible and are prepared to do the work of reading it as we hear it taught that we'll be able to discern true from false in the Bible, uh, false in the talks we hear. And so I wonder how many of you have been testing what I've been saying in the Bible this morning. I'm actually, I can see most of you, and I'm pretty impressed, that you have been actually holding your Bibles open, looking, and that is good. Well, let me conclude by telling you about Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson was a man who heard about Jesus uh, under the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield's preaching, who many of you will know. Uh, Robert Robinson became a vibrant preacher himself and drew many hundreds into his congregation. He wrote beautiful hymns. Uh, Ruth and I had one of his hymns at our wedding, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sung that at Bundy. Yes, we have. Yet tragically, Rob Robinson was introduced to the teachings of an intellectual called Joseph Priestley. Priestley was the founder of a heretical new denomination movement, denominational movement known as Unitarianism. This movement picked up an old heresy known as Arianism and denied Christ's divinity. They believed that God was one, not three. Over time, Robinson left his orthodox Christian past and became a vigorous defender of Unitarianism, seduced by the intellectual writings of Priestley. 
I want to read a verse from uh, that classic hymn, Come Thou Fount, which Robinson wrote before he descended into heresy. It says this, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. See, we, like Robert Robinson, are prone to wander. Our sinful hearts are prone to leave the God we love. But Peter is saying, let's not end up where he did. Let's take the warning seriously and keep saying that if I'm not ready for false teachers, I will be ruined by them. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we know that you give us warnings in Scripture for our good. Father, we recognize that we do have sinful hearts, that we are capable of buying into lies. So we pray, Father, that you would keep us always trusting in the Lord Jesus, so overjoyed with the truth that we have in the gospel, so equipped with the sword of the word of God that you give us, that we don't fall prey to heresy, to immorality, to false teaching. Father, we need your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.